Go beyond the headlines and deepen your understanding of the forces shaping our world today on The Political Scene, a newly updated podcast from The New Yorker. With episodes three times each week, The Political Scene accesses the sharpest minds on politics, offering insight and analysis about everything from abortion rights to the war in Ukraine. Join me, Tyler Foggett, for conversations with the most knowledgeable minds from The New Yorker that will dive deep on the most interesting political story of the week. Then, Susan Glasser, Jane Mayer, and Evan Osnos gather to hash out what's happening in Washington, D.C., with an insider's understanding of the high stakes at this perilous moment for American democracy. Plus, our editor David Remnick will provide you with insightful storytelling with a mix of interviews and profiles. That's all happening on the political scene. Make sure you're following it now, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jason Kander. This is Majority 54, a podcast that helps the 54% of us who didn't vote for Trump talk to those who did about the most divisive issues in our country, all by having conversations with real people experiencing these issues in their everyday lives and sharing their story. I want to thank everyone who has subscribed and rated the show. I've read every single comment on Facebook and Twitter and in the iTunes store, and I appreciate all of them. And, and thanks to all of you. This is so cool. Majority 54 debuted at number one on the national podcast charts. Yo, we beat Oprah. Not that it matters, but she did not call the conceit. Today, I'm introducing you to former CIA officer A.J. Twombly for insight on the Trump administration's campaign against the American intelligence community. So the president does a lot of talking about about them, about the intelligence community, and they don't get to answer back. And as a former Army intelligence officer myself, I know how his rhetoric makes me feel, and I thought it would be interesting if we talked to a non-military individual in intelligence to see how they view the current environment. So AJ and I sat down at O'Hara's Restaurant and Pub. It's a bar across from the World Trade Center in New York City. I picked O'Hara's because on the first anniversary of 9-11, after all the ceremonies, firefighters and police officers from all over the country gathered at O'Hara's to reminisce. And they stuck their department patches up on the walls, which started a tradition of first responders going to O'Hara's to do the same. So when we met there, the walls were covered almost completely with patches. And, and the bar was filled with firefighters, with police officers, and of course, with tourists who, who just wanted to see the spectacle. Since 9-11 had such a big impact on both AJ's life and on mine, I thought this was the best place for this conversation. Here's AJ. Have you done something like this before? I have not. Okay, uh, good. So it's I... funny that you're so much more comfortable than me. <laughs> I have a question. Can I lower a teensy bit? Ask any, yeah. And... So I can see him. The curse of being short. How tall are you? It's the lowest I think I can get. Okay, cool. How tall? What, what is your height? I like to embellish and say I'm 5'2", but I'm not quite officially 5'2". So are you like 4'10"? No, I'm 5'1". <laughs> I, well, I, didn't know, I didn't know how much you were embellishing, and I only saw you stand for a second. So, okay, so... When nine, let's start with when 9-11 happened. Yeah. Um, when 9-11 happened, uh, you were in D.C. working in, in the Senate, right? I was. I was working for Senator Lieberman um, on September 11th. And how, how far out of school were you? I had graduated in May of 2000, so a little over okay. a year. Yeah. Um, so were you working on national security stuff? What were you working on? I had already applied to the agency. I was waiting to hear back. I had applied earlier that year um, and was going through the process. And I was um, staffed on his governmental affairs committee um, at the time, mm -hmm. mostly answering constituent letters. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, overnight, that 
role became very different because he was instrumental in starting the Department of Homeland Security. Um, Unfortunately, because of the events that transpired, I had the opportunity to sit in on a number of those hearings um, and, you know, talk to some of the survivors' families. So you were already... So it's interesting because, uh, for me, I don't know if I would have gone into the Army had 9-11 not happened. I like to think I would have, but I don't know if I would have. You were already, you had already decided to go to the agency. I was about eight months into the application process, yeah. So I was, I had one um, final step in my background check left to go. And did you see like a movie and you were like, that looks cool? When I met my husband my senior year in college, um, he had wanted to work for the CIA. And I remember our first date was here in New York and... I said, you know, I, I really want to go work uh, overseas. I want to travel. I speak these languages. I want to do something. And he turned and said, have you ever thought about working for the CIA? And my immediate response was, I'm, I'm petite. I'm, that's not what I do. I'm not going to, you know, scale the side of a building. Um, and he said, you should check it out. There's actually a lot more to it. Um, and I started doing my research, and I realized fundamentally it was a job about building relationships, about carrying forward our mission, um, and helping, you know, have a lot of conversations that facilitate things. So he, before he was even in the CIA, he successfully recruited you into the CIA. Yeah. <laughs> that would have been a good omen for him being pretty good at the job, I would think. Uh, so, how, okay, which languages did you already speak? So I spoke Spanish, sure. my first language, obviously English. Um, and I had studied French uh, all through high school and college, was French minor, and um, had also learned Italian while in college. Uh, so you're pretty well, I mean, language is not something that is super difficult for you to acquire. No. Uh, it's like a superpower. Um, okay, so that's the languages you spoke then. What languages do you speak now as we sit here? I now also speak Turkish. Okay. Which... Yeah. Yeah. Part of the job. Part of the job. Interesting. How long did it take you to pick up Turkish? A year. Almost a year. So you had already decided you wanted to go in. Then 9-11 happened. So for me, that experience was 9-11 had a lot to do with why I ended up doing what I was doing. For you, you were already going to do it. Yep. So, and you were in D.C. that day. It's kind of funny. You were in D.C. that day. Then we were in Afghanistan, apparently, around the same time. What was going through your mind that day in a way that you think was probably different than what was going through the minds of all the, you know, your coworkers that day? Yeah. Um, I mean, number one, it was a horrible day. Um, and we had friends both in D.C. and, and, and New York. Um, I, I think if I, if I took any comfort um, with what I had been doing for the last eight months was that I, I think we talked about this, I felt like I had a plan where I could contribute. I knew it was a long way away for me to get out to the field or to do anything substantial, um, but I felt like, okay, I I have an action that I can take to try and help because ultimately there was just a feeling of helplessness and you all probably experienced the same thing where you're watching this horrific act that I think as Americans we never imagined. I mean, certainly in our lifetime, never imagined we would see that the U.S. had not been attacked in many decades. Um, And it it was just overwhelming helplessness. Overwhelming helplessness... But for you, also a feeling of, but I know what I'm going to do about yeah. this. 
Yeah, that's, I mean, because for me that day it was, I had this refrain in my mind of, I have to do something. And and ended up, you know, eventually satisfying that by joining. Uh, but it's just interesting for you, you're already on your way. And I, I had a buddy who uh, was already on it, like transitioning into the military at that time. And that happened to be the day that he picked up his equipment and was taking it home. And he was on, he was on the subway in D.C., uh, and uh, or maybe it was the next day, I don't remember, but he said people... Oh, he, he was just a guy who had picked up, like, a helmet and some other stuff. He didn't know what... He didn't even know how to wear it yet. And he said everybody was like, hey, thanks, man, because they all thought, like, he had just been called up and was, like, on his way somewhere. And he said he said he just felt awful about everybody, like, channeling their gratitude to him. And he was like, I've literally never done anything. Um, but, but there is that little feeling even he had, and, and, and we had a, okay, I know what I'm going to do about this. Um... So, okay, so when you're with your friends and they want to hear an unclassified, because that's all they have the option to hear, badass story about going through training, first tell me that story, and then second, tell me the story that when you get together with your friends who you went through training, the story that you all share that's just hilarious. Because uh, having gone through military training, I know there's two, there's, and they're, they're usually two separate stories. Um... <laughs> So we'll we'll talk after this mm-hmm. about what. Sure. You tell me the version you can tell. Um, so my funny story. Um, I want to set the stage and say I grew up in Miami in the '80s, which, as you guys all probably know, was not necessarily the safest place. It was not Miami Vice, but it was an interesting place. Um, and as a result of uh, unfortunately high crime at times, we were always sort of aware of our surroundings. So the funny story I like to share is in training. We had an exercise where they were preparing you in the event that there is any any type of ambush um, or any issue. Well, hold on. Not any issue. It's not like, <laughs> okay, look, if your hotel reservation doesn't work out, this is what you do. Like, ambush and or, I would assume, kidnapping. Right. Okay. Right. Um, and so part of the exercise was to get in a car, and they don't tell you anything about it. Is at night, um, and they say, okay, you know, got to drive your car, and you have an instructor sitting with you, and so I did, I started driving, and immediately I come to, this is in training, but I come to a checkpoint, and guy says to me in very broken Spanish, you know, oh, I need your papers, and so forth, so I respond in, obviously, native Spanish, and he, he sort of backs off, um, waves me through, and... Um, Probably less than a minute later, there is an explosion that happens on the you know, one side of the car. And okay, let me stop you for a second. When we did stuff like that, we had like pyrotechnics that were pretty good. Like how good? Really good. You guys get the good stuff, right? Like, good stuff. like ours is like I pull it. Like when I was an officer candidate school instructor, like I pull a little pin on a thing, throw it, and it sounds like artillery, but like. It ain't like an action movie. Like, I would imagine y'all get the good, good. Yeah, you get the good stuff. Good. To, okay, I was just curious. Go ahead. So, you know, you see you see this on the right, and um, as this as I look over, you know, four guys in masks around the car and start trying to open the door, and I just accelerate. The instructor stops the car, and he turns to me and he said, where did you grow up? 
<laughs> he said, I grew up in Miami. He said, first student tonight who hasn't gotten pulled out of the car. <laughs> really? So, because that, that my funny story. Because <laughs> I had locked all my doors. But I'd gotten in the car and all the doors were unlocked and all the windows were down. And of course, you know, I was always paranoid in Miami. A lot of people drive. The distances are very long. So, you know, I checked every single door, locked every door, and raised every window. So we had so, a big laugh about how it. How far into training was this? This is at the end. Oh, okay. Well, I think that's even more remarkable, that you're at the end of training and he's still like, where did you grow up? <laughs> Not like, clearly you've learned a lot over the last X amount of time. That's really funny. And now what's the most badass story? You can tell me. Uh, Don't be shy. Like... <laughs> Everybody listening already thinks you're a badass. I have to think about that one. All right. Well, you, you think about it. We'll come back to it. So, okay. So you go through training. Uh, how much can you... Tell me what you can tell me about. You did three tours. I did three tours. Um, I can share that one of my tours was in Afghanistan um, and that I was a case officer. Okay. The others you can't share, but you speak Turkish. Fair enough. All right. If someone says, while you are in the CIA in Afghanistan... What did you do? You tell me the version you can tell me. So my job um, throughout my career with the agency was as a case officer, and um, case officers are um, people who spend majority of their career overseas. They are tasked with uh, collecting intelligence from the field and managing relationships to collect that intelligence. You develop sources and you get information from them and you bring it up, bring it up the chain of command. Uh, yeah, I mean, so I, I I did some human to work as well as some analysis when I was overseas, and so uh, similar, I would imagine. I and I think we talked about this once that my favorite. There are so many great and absurd acronyms <laughs> when you're in the military. My favorite was OGA, which stood for Other Government Agency, <laughs> which everybody understood meant CIA. So you would say to people like, "Oh, that that guy over there, he's OGA." Which was literally the same as saying he's yes. CIA. But made, we're all very uncomfortable saying those three letters. It just, it's, it cracked <laughs> Don't me up. say them. It made no sense. The OGA took the same amount of time, the same amount of letters, and was synonymous. Anyway, so how many years were you in? Uh, I left in 09, so oh, 01 no. to 09. Okay, 01 to 09, so eight years. And so, and then you came out and you, and you, you decided to go to business school. So tell me about, first, let's talk about the decision to leave. At some point, you made that decision. Tell me what that's like. Um, it was very hard. I think I still, you know, many years later, uh, eight actually years later, I think about um, our friends who are still in, and I think about uh, the sacrifices they continued to make, and I am very grateful on a daily basis that they stayed and that they found ways to make it work. Um, for my husband and me, it was about our family and our kids. Um, it was a little bit about coming home and just being close to everybody. Um, but it, I'm, I'm sure similar situation for you. You struggle with leaving and, and always thinking you could have done more. Um, it's guilt. It's guilt. It's a lot of guilt. I mean, there's no other way to... to I mean, it's the best, I think, best way to describe it. By far the most popular part of the first episode of Majority 54 <laughs> seems to be that uh, Diana does the ads, so... Babe, let's hear from the generous sponsors that allow us to do this podcast. Ladies, what man does not look better in a suit? Am I right? Also, a man in jeans and a jacket <laughs> and a tie, what I refer to as high school history teacher, mm -hmm. 
I mean, that's the look I rock. Yes, yes, that too. So Indochino is making it easy to get either one of those looks to your exact measurements at a great price. You can choose from hundreds of top quality fabrics and customize all the details, including your lapel, jacket lining, monogram, everything. Do you remember the first, the only custom suit I've ever actually had? Yeah, like right after Afghanistan. Yeah, they brought merchants onto the base and they would make stuff for us and I brought it home and I was like, this looks so cool. Aren't, you know, I was really excited. Yeah, there's something wrong with it. Were, it, was... it was green. <laughs> you were like, it's green. I was, I was like, it's like not a, green. It's like an olive, olive green. Because of the way you looked at it in that moment, I I'm never so wore it a single time. Well, we can fix that and, and get everybody an incredibly tailor-fit Indochino suit. I'm looking at the website right now and there are no uh, olive green suits. By the suits. way, I'm pretty sure it's pronounced Indochino. <laughs> I gave us explicit instructions. It's <laughs> Indochino. Well, they should really consider changing. <laughs> com. Right now, our listeners can get any Indochino made-to-measure suit from just three twenty-nine. That's incredible. During Indochino's massive Black Friday sale when entering 5-4 at checkout at anyindochino.com or any Indochino showroom. That's up to 60% off the regular price of a made-to-measure premium suit. Plus, shipping is free. Or just jeans. and You can wear your jeans. You can wear the, <laughs> the jacket and the tie. It still looks really cool. Yes, you could. You can use your suit for that. They it, probably want people to buy the pants, too. You should buy the pants. But you can mix and match. Yeah. That's Indochino.com, promo code 54 for any made-to-measure suit from just three twenty-nine and free shipping. Incredible deal for a suit that's going to fit you better than anything off the rack ever could. Cannot wait to get our Indochino uh, shirt that we just measured uh, and ordered. I'm very excited. Indochino. (laughs) You know how when you've been uh, benching like 350 pounds or (laughs) you just bend over to pick up a kid's toy and you get that crick in your neck or your back and you just need a massage to relax and unwind and be able to turn your head again. Soothe, Soothe. isn't <laughs> isn't on. Oh to it. yeah. Soothe. All right, so Jason's decided that we're not just reading the Soothe ads, that he's auditioning to be the national spokesperson for Soothe. Soothe. Um, <laughs> it's an on-demand massage service that delivers a hand-selected, licensed, and experienced therapist to you in the comfort of your own home, hotel, office, in as little as an hour. They show up with Everything. They bring the massage table, the sheets, the oil, even the music. So you music. can <laughs> soothe. He literally walks around the house all day long, just saying soothe. <laughs> and you get to pick the gender of your therapist. Not all day long. Book a massage soothe. as soon as today. Our listeners are going to get a special offer that's going to get you twenty dollars off your first massage when you use code five four. Just download the. I'm doing it. The soothe. Oh yeah. S O O T H E. S O O T H E. In the iOS that app store. Spells soothe. Or Google Play Store, and be sure to use our code five four to get twenty dollars off your first massage. Soothe. Spa quality massage anytime, anywhere. For me, it's interesting, and I think this is a very different experience, has to be from yours. One of the things about not being covert is that people could always, like, people would stop me in airports and I'd, you know, or at the gas station or whatever if I was in uniform and thank me for my service. And I, but I never knew how to process that. Like, to me, 
everybody, oh, you know, so many people I worked with and my friends were doing what I was doing, and many of which I felt were doing much more. But then, as soon as as soon as I crossed that threshold, in fact, I remember the last day, like my last drill weekend, I went home uh, and took off the uniform for the last time, and. My wife and I were going out. We stopped at a gas station, and there was a guy in uniform. And I remember all of a sudden, like having this overwhelming desire to, or like, you know, something pushing me to go thank him for his, because I had now gone to the other side. And for the first time, I understood. But for you, is no one was, you no one was thanking you while you were in. So what's that's got to be a little bit different, right? Like like you were saying, you value what the folks are doing, and like I always say to people who are in the service, I'm always like, thank you, because you're still doing it, and I'm not. But what, what was that transition like for you, going from a person who was doing that? To, like, I think of it as going from the protector to the protectee. It's not dissimilar. Um, I, I think if there was a challenge, it was processing that guilt quietly and, and by ourselves, because you're not telling anybody what you're doing um, or why it's hard to sort of reintegrate. Okay, stop there. Um, I want to know more about that. At what point are you... How's that work? Because there was never, for me, like I was an intelligence officer. Obviously, there's things I did that I can't talk about. um, But I was never not able to say that I was. One... Uh, what's it like when you're doing that? And two, what's it like when you're trying to like get a job or get into school afterwards and you can't talk about it? Um, it's challenging. It's hard. Um, and again, I, I think of my colleagues who served with me who are still in. Um, you constantly know that what you do on a day-to-day basis, you do quietly and without anyone knowing, you're not doing it for any thank you. Um, you're doing it, and I, I think this was true of all of us, you're doing it because you have such a commitment to the mission and you know it's important work and it's worth the sacrifice. And if I had to do it over again, I would 100% say yes. Um, I think the transition out is challenging because you, you leave this... Um, group of individuals who know, number one, and with whom you can be open. Um, And it's also a a group of individuals with whom you share a lot in common. And, you know, you can laugh about the crazy stories um, and you can sort of take comfort in that you've got somebody saying, okay, you got, you know, keep going, uh, we can do this together. That that type of camaraderie um, is hard to find, I think, outside of the military or or government service. Um, And I think, again, transitioning out, to your point, there's a lot of guilt. There's a lot of guilt uh, for the folks who you left. Um, there's always a lot of guilt of could I have done more? Could I, you know, could I have been better? Could I have pushed and and, and found a way to make it work? Other people have, um, but again, you're having that conversation very quietly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, Internally, in my case, it was with my husband. It was, it was, it was very nice because we had served together and we left together. Um, but yeah, I mean, our friends didn't know what we did. We just sort of went overseas. And <laughs> at some point, you were able to obviously because we're sitting here yes what was what was it like to tell people very strange uh, it's still very odd to talk about it uh, you spend eight years being told never say those three letters even if you're saying right. three different letters um, and there's so many terms for it by the way like <laughs> because of what I did obviously a lot of people I worked with ended up 
going mm-hmm. going that direction. Yep. And like, so one of them was they went over the river. Right? Have you ever heard, heard that, that one? one? I've no. heard people say, I think it's over the river, I guess, which I guess is the Potomac. Like, it's people who say they're over the river. Makes sense. And then, of course, there's they're in Virginia. Uh, there's, uh, God, there's some I'm forgetting, you know. Um, but I always thought over the river was the one that made me laugh. But, you know, like oh, they're that. in Virginia for a while. They're, anyway, so that, you're right. I guess that's why. It's because people are just conditioned, like, don't say the three letters. Right, like, you're, you're conditioned never to speak about it, never to tell anybody. Uh, you internalize that from day one. Um, and it's important that you not share that, uh, but then it's very odd to tell people. Much like my initial response uh, to my husband's suggestion that I look at the CIA, um, I think people have an image in their head of what a CIA officer looks like and and the types of individuals they are, Um, and so it's always just odd, because whatever you say, it's not, you know, and it's, I think, true for any of us who have had our cover rolled back. Um, people are like, oh, that's interesting. I didn't, I didn't think you did that. And then tell me more. And um, that, of course, becomes even more challenging because you have been conditioned not to talk about it, and then you have to answer these questions. So, it's- and then there's this verbal minefield of what, what can I say? And um, so, when I, I remember when I came home from Afghanistan, I went back to work like two weeks later at a law firm, and I remember sitting there. It was a big defense firm. And this was also pretty much the moment that I realized I was going to go do a different kind of law. And I think also so did the individual who, uh, with the partner that I was working under, because he came in, he had like a motion or something. I don't remember what I'd been working on, but he came in and he talked to me about it. And he was like, this is really important. And I remember saying, is anybody going to die? And, and I think in that moment, we both knew that I probably wasn't going to stay in that <laughs> job that long. But so what's it like to so I know what it's like to come back and, and, and you sort of look around. I'll see if this is your experience. You sort of look around at people like going about their day and you're like, don't these people know what's going on? How is everyone acting so normal? And one of the, one of the things that bothers me, speaking of the guilt thing, is you, know, you do. It's natural. After a certain amount of years, you settle into into that right. too. And then you right. catch and you're like... You catch yourself. Right. Yeah. I'm acting like everything is okay. And, and so for you, like you go back, what was that like for you to go back? And now you're, you're in an MBA program and everybody's just in grad school trying to do their thing. What was it like to settle into that? Uh, very hard. It was very challenging. Um, I had similar conversations uh, where I thought no one's going to die. No, you know, this is not the end of the world. It's an Excel spreadsheet. Um, I, I think we can just you know, stay level-headed around it, and we will be fine. She would watch people, like, stress about a final. Right. And, and understandably so. It is, it's not to disparage other people's stress. It's understandably sure. stressful. Um, but I think you have different perspective, and I think um, over the long term, I think it helps. Um, I came back from Afghanistan uh, again with a renewed sense of gratitude, gratitude that we live in a very different country, gratitude that um, we don't have to worry about where our next meal is coming from. And that's not true for all Americans, but um, we're not worried that someone is going to drop a bomb or send a rocket. And one of the memories that stays with me was um, one of the times I was out in Kabul, there was a, a group of little kids probably ranging from age four to about 11. 
and we were just walking around the street and um, ran up to me and were asking for candy. You know, just because I think they got into the habit of Americans always carry candy and they, you know, they'll give us something. And, and pens. They wanted, <laughs> I remember they always wanted pens. pens any, yeah. Anything they could get. And I just... Um, I rubbed one of the little boy's heads and, you know, it was like, I don't have anything. I'm sorry, buddy. Um, and I, I pulled my hand up and it was just covered in dirt. And it stayed with me because I thought this poor kid is, you know, by himself. He's, forget about water. I mean, there's no access to drinking water. It's a, a bath is an amazing, you know, experience that he's not going to have. Um, forget about chocolate. Forget about all these little things um, that I... You know, it's easy. To your point, you can fall into the day-to-day routine and, and take those things for granted. Um, I think it gives you very good perspective on on things that matter. Those kids, I think about those kids all the time because I ran into kids in Kabul too. I think about them all the time. One of the things I always think about is how their faces. Like a kid could be six years old and look fourteen. Yeah. Because they had just they had lived like so many years so within many those years. years. Um, it's just so different. But, um, okay, so as somebody who, like, your personal identity uh, during a very formative period was about you're somebody who serves their country, right? So between 9 and 5, when you're working at your job and you're seeing the news, what's it like to think about all those folks who are still serving, still doing it? Like, you're observing the news. You're observing President Trump you know, executing what I argue often is basically a misinformation campaign against the intelligence community. Like, how does that make you feel that you think is different than, you know, maybe some of your other similarly progressive-minded co-workers, but, like, how, how do you think you experience it differently? Um, I think there's a lot of guilt. I mean, I think about the people who are out serving, um, and I, um, it's, we have both walked in Afghanistan. We know what the day-to-day is like, and I, I wasn't in the military, so I, you know, I can yeah, only speculate. You did more than I did. It's, it, I don't think it's dissimilar. I think it, the only way it's dissimilar is you went to more places for longer. So. I worry about the policies. Um, I worry that there are a bunch of 18 and 19 and 20 year old kids, um, and I compare that with my own, you know, teenage, late teenage years. Um, and I want to make sure that their service um, is is thanked. I want to make sure that if we are sending them in harm's way, we're doing it for a really good reason, and that it's not some decision that is made haphazardly um, and that we're not, you know, I think one of the things that I um, think about most during the day as I read the news, news like today um, and yesterday, I, I want to know that we are not sending mixed messages to the international community, that we're not instigating issues. Um, nothing is perfect and, and it's, it's a very challenging... You, you feel like Trump has made us less safe? Yes, I do. Me too. I think it's the... Of all the things he's done, I think it's the worst. Yeah. It's the most damaging thing. When... I remember having a really visceral reaction to... During the... When he was still president-elect, and they asked him about intelligence briefings, and he said uh, that he didn't need them. He didn't think they were important. Uh, what I remember... Well, I'll tell you what I thought about it. First, I, I'm curious how that made you feel and like what you thought about when you heard it? I thought about 
the people who are serving right now, um, the ones I know, the ones I don't know. I thought about the risks that our intelligence community takes on a day-to-day -day basis. And, um, you know, shortly after making that statement, he compared the intelligence community, the CIA specifically, to Nazis. Um, you know, and then he made the speech in front of uh, the Wall of Stars. And um, it's very hard to listen to that. It was very hard to listen to that speech. There are so many people, you know, to the point earlier, who are taking risks, who are putting family life on hold, um, or foregoing it altogether, who are leaving parents and children and spouses and brothers and sisters behind. And they will never be thanked, and no one will ever know who they are. Um, and to, you know, one of the few comforts that we always had when I was serving, um, even though I didn't agree with all of our policies, we were thanked. We were constantly thanked. Uh, to have a commander-in-chief who doesn't thank our intelligence community, no one else is going to be thanking them on a regular basis. It's hard to listen to. And it's, it's also not just about thanks. I mean, because I remember what I was thinking was, you know, when when he says, basically says that he doesn't think that the intelligence coming back is any good or valuable, he doesn't think he needs briefings. I remember thinking about all the rooms I went into to get information to talk to people, knowing that I might not get out of the room. I'm sure that happened for you too. And and I guess of of, of the things that make you okay with going into that room. One of them is the idea that you're going to provide information up the chain of command that people in the chain of command are going to listen to, and and that it's, and it's not just about oh well that's good for the country that's obviously a big motivation but immediately it's more like that might that might save one of my friends' lives. Right. So I can't imagine what it would be like to be in that role. I mean, go, look, obviously, like you said, I mean, we were over there while, while Bush was president. I had disagreements with him. For instance, I thought he invaded the wrong country. Pretty, pretty big disagreement. But I never thought that he didn't care about the information right. we were trying to get. And, right. and so the idea that you would, as a leader, make that the demonstration and, 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 and that other people in the chain of command might emulate it, like, I just don't know how you keep up the morale and the motivation to go into the room and risk your life if you, if you don't know if anyone's going to care up the chain what you're going to find out. Um, anyway, that... I agree with you. Yeah. I agree with you and have the same question. I don't know how you ask someone uh, and ask them, in, in many instances, you know this as well, to risk their lives to get you information when... You know, our president is tweeting um, and and questioning the value of that information. Uh, a lot of the the individuals that we rely on, the sources, are people who are taking incredible risks, and many of them are taking those risks because they believe in our country. They believe in our leadership. Um, they want to make a better future for their own countries, um, and that's not just talk, and it's not you know, just hyperbole. Um, and, and without those individuals, there's nothing that we have to report back. There's nothing to improve upon or collect. Um, so I think you're, you're facing two challenges. Number one, you're facing folks who may not be as willing to talk to us. And number two, I think it's demoralizing for our officers who are overseas and being asked to take great risks. To your point, you don't know if you're coming out of that room. And many of our colleagues did not over the last 
you know, 17 years that we've been at war. Um, people need to know that someone is reading it and that they will act on it. Mm -hmm. And they should. If somebody told you right now that they were, like, they're getting out of school and they were thinking about going to the agency or going into intelligence work, given the way the president talks about it, the way he treats it, would you give him the exact same advice that you that you would have otherwise, do you think? I would. And I um, go back to the question I had after I read Anne Frank as a kid. I would because I think everyone who is called to serve should serve. If people don't, if good people don't go into intelligence and diplomacy and the military and politics, um, who's left? Who's left to hold others accountable? Who's left to say, look, this is not right. We draw a line in the sand when somebody, you know, is wearing uh, KKK gowns or carrying a swastika or doing something that is so grossly inappropriate and far beyond free speech. You need good people to continue to serve. Big thank you to AJ Twombly for a great conversation. Okay, as you know, in this second segment of the show, we roll through some of the most common Republican talking points on the issue at hand, and then I talk about how I tend to respond, and hopefully that gives you some ideas. So I really appreciate, by the way, all of you who have been tweeting back at me when I've sort of put out the call to let me know which common talking points you wanted me to respond to. So let's start with the first one. Here's number one. This is about the political process of the United States of America being under attack by intelligence agencies and individuals in those agencies. Yes, as you said, there might be some good people in there, but there are certain individuals who are the lifers who want to be able to direct the policy of the country. And if a president stands in their way, whether it's a Democrat or Republican, they'll just try uh, to run just that person you said. out. You're saying President Trump is under attack by the deep state intelligence community. Fair statement? Well, I, I believe that. So this argument is basically that the intelligence community has its own agenda. Or as, as somebody on Twitter so eloquently paraphrased this argument to me, blah, 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 something, something, deep state. <laughs> when somebody dismisses conclusions of the intelligence community by chalking all of it up to some united political agenda, I ask them whether they would say the same thing about, about the U.S. military. Would you say the U.S. Army or the Marine Corps, or the Navy or the Air Force has a political agenda? They always laugh and say, of course not. Look, Americans rightfully think a lot of the military, so, so they think that idea is pretty silly. Well, so is assigning political motives to the civilian side of the intelligence community. First of all, a lot of the intelligence that's gathered is actually done by the U.S. military, or, or it's at least directly supported by military personnel who work at these agencies. It's not all people who wear ties and testify before Congress. It's, it's a lot of people who wear a uniform to work. And so for there to be a big conspiracy against the president, the military would actually have to be in on that, too. And nobody thinks that's the case. And even if they are talking about intelligence that was gathered by civilians, I remind people that, you know, those folks like AJ, they're really not that much different than soldiers. I mean, listen to how AJ and I talked to each other about our experience. When I hear it played back, it sounds a lot like the conversations that I have all the time with fellow veterans, whether they were in intelligence or, or in some other field. Our motivations for joining were, were pretty similar. The training we went through was similar. Our Afghanistan experiences crossed over in big ways and that we both found ourselves in danger. And we even share a common feeling of wondering 
whether or not our sacrifices were really meaningful enough. I mean, you could hear that common theme of, you know, there's no other term for it than guilt that we carry around about whether or not we could have done more. And I've almost never talked to a veteran who didn't also carry that emotion around with them. And in our experiences of returning home, they really only had one real difference. People thanked me because they saw the uniform or they found out that I had served, but AJ and her friends, they couldn't even tell anybody what they had done until years later. And that is why they have proven to be such an easy target for President Trump. They can't fight back, so it's easy to paint all of them with one big brush. This whole blaming of the so-called deep state or assigning political motivations to people who work in government across multiple administrations, it actually reminds me a lot of back during the Bush administration when people said that anybody who opposed the war was undermining the troops. Because the basic premise of the argument is that the troops, uniformed or otherwise, that they pay a lot of attention to and that they care a lot about what happens in American politics. But that wasn't my experience at all. When I was in Afghanistan, even I, a former political science major, only thought about politics very occasionally. And most people didn't think about it at all because our jobs were pretty all-consuming and because we knew that those jobs required our full attention. So in the spare mental space that we had, we dedicated it to trivia from home that was easy, like sports and, and believe it or not, gossip magazines at least in in my unit, stuff like People Magazine really made its way around to everybody. It's pretty much the only time in my life that I've read that stuff with any regularity. Because when you're doing that kind of work, you're not thinking often about heavy stuff like politics back home. And I know it wasn't just me who felt that way. I, I once saw someone brief the U.S. Director of Intelligence in Afghanistan, who was an old school army colonel and a serious tough guy, about the fact that imams, Muslim clerics in Afghanistan, were protesting the playing of Western music on the radio because they thought it violated a moral code. So when this happened, the colonel turns to all of us in the room and says, well, I guess they think Shakira's hips do, in fact, lie. Everybody cracked up because all of us had been reading the same copy of the same pop culture magazine that somebody's mom had sent in the mail. So my point here is that we were over there to do a job, not to fight about American politics. And the same goes for the vast majority of people who are serving in the non-uniformed parts of the intelligence world. All right, let's have the next common Republican talking point. I mean, I think the important thing to remember is there's no smoking gun yet. Uh, There is no evidence of collusion. Uh, My personal view is that the evidence of people whose votes were swayed by what was in Podesta's emails is extremely small. Um, And I think genuinely the Democrats see this as a political weapon to hurt the administration with. Uh, Go ahead, please. Well, Blake Berman just reported that Donald Trump was told three times by Jim Comey that he was not under investigation. So why won't this Russia story just go away? Oh, because it's an effective political weapon. I mean, it's it's power over the administration that Congress and the Democrats have. So this argument is basically that there's no smoking gun. There's nothing here. So can't we just move on? Look, I know it is really hard not to engage on this one. I mean, look. I think Russia's involvement in our elections may be the biggest scandal in American history and, and that we're living through a Tom Clancy novel right now. And that makes me want to scream that the Trump administration's taking Putin's side in Syria represents the first time in American history a presidential election has ever caused the United States to switch sides in a war. And that's a really big deal. And it, 
It makes me want to throw up my hands in disgust and say, the American commander in charge of U.S. forces in Afghanistan says the Russians are giving weapons to the Taliban, so they're really, really not our friends. And when I've been on CNN and had Trump commentators try to distract the audience with complaints about unmasking or leaks, I've wondered aloud whether if Paul Revere had come riding through their neighborhood yelling, the British are coming, the British are coming, they'd have yelled back, that's not how you ride a horse. But but the truth is, we have arrived at a point where we don't have to win the public debate over Russia's past involvement. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying it's no longer important. I'm saying we all have different roles to play here. Before there was a reliable special counsel appointed, public pressure was essential in order to make that happen. But now there is a special counsel, and he appears to be doing a very competent and serious job, and we should let it play out. Robert Mueller's job is to look back at what happened, provide answers, and then hold people accountable. Our job as citizens is to help make sure that it doesn't happen again and that we help prevent something even worse. Because even if you were able to win this argument about the past, the whole reason you'd want to is to try and prevent it from happening again in the future. So we should just skip to making that argument. So when people bring this up, I steer the conversation away from the past and toward the future. Because even Donald Trump doesn't dispute the fact that multiple unsuccessful attempts were made to hack into the voter registration rolls and to disrupt the actual system of elections. So instead of debating whether the Russians made a difference in the outcome of the election, we ought to be getting everyone to join us in demanding that Congress take action to secure our elections in the future. So, so I ask people if they agree that we ought to make sure that no one from either party or, or from any foreign country can hack in and cause chaos on Election Day in America. We need everybody together on this. And and I argue that we should treat voter rolls, for example, as critical infrastructure, no different from the electric grid. Do we want North Korea to be able to hack into our elections in 2018? No, of course not. So can't we all agree that Trump and the Republicans ought to to join with the Democrats and, and get to work on keeping that from happening? I mean, what if Dennis Rodman were the Democratic nominee in 2020? Wouldn't we want to stop him from colluding with his BFF Kim Jong-un to use North Korean social media bots to influence public opinion and spread fake news about Donald Trump? Okay, well, in all seriousness, though, as, as citizens, we owe it to our democracy to focus this conversation not on past incidents, but on future solutions. And, and if there weren't an ongoing independent investigation that I have real faith in, I would feel differently about this. But there is. So we have to ask the question, What can we convince real people to be in favor of so we can get some real action from Congress to avoid this situation ever happening again? Okay, now that we've addressed the most common Republican talking points, and thanks to everybody who tweeted these examples at me, I want to add a final thought here. There is one political development that really can affect morale in the intelligence community in a really dangerous way, and AJ and I talked about it. It's President Trump saying that there's no reason to consider intelligence or to receive briefings. AJ and I talked about how hard it would have been to to stay motivated, to risk our lives, to gather information if we thought nobody cared about the intelligence that we were bringing back. And if you have any doubt that people serving in the intelligence world truly care about their country above all else, consider AJ's response to my last question. I asked her whether 
given everything that she sees about this president's disdain for intelligence, whether she would advise somebody to go into the CIA today. And she said she absolutely would because it's the right thing to do and it can help the country. That is patriotism, folks. No matter who's president, she believes in the mission and she believes in doing everything that you can to protect your country. That is who most of the quiet professionals doing this work are at their core and they deserve our thanks. So let me conclude this part of the show by by saying thanks to all of my fellow secret squirrels out there, the past or present. Thank you from all of us for dedicating your life to protecting our country. Finally, many of you have tweeted at me asking about the Majority 54 theme music, and I'm happy to tell you that it's the work of a friend of mine, Kansas City's own Kimmet Coleman, who's also known as The Phantom. Kimmet is a really big star here in KC, and it was very cool of him to do that for us. You can learn more about Kimmet in the show notes. Also, I got AJ to reactivate her Twitter account just so y'all could reach out to her and let her know what you liked or just what you learned from her interview. I think she's got 18 followers right now, so find her Twitter handle in the show notes and say hi. As I told you, I read every single comment, and I try to respond to as many as I can. And every time that you share and tell your friends about the show, it grows the conversation. We already contacted all the winners of the early subscriber contest, but I just feel like giving out a bit more Majority 54 stuff. So this week, I'd love for you to take a picture of where you're listening to Majority 54, tag your friends, and tell them why you think it matters that they listen. And then we'll pick a few more folks to to get some merch. All right, this has been Majority 54, and I'm Jason Kander, reminding you that we all have a platform, so make sure to use yours today. Talk to you soon. Hi, listeners. It's Robbie with a question for you. What if instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're on the cusp of a better world? For that answer, I recommend listening to the What Could Go Right podcast. Each week, Progress Network founders Zachary Carabell and Executive Director Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from elections to climate change, and make the case for a brighter future with guests like Harvard professor Arthur C. Brooks and California State Senator Robert Hertzberg. Progress is on the way. Find out on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts.